Bruce Cook is honored to have you join his conversations with people committed to talking with heart and brain functions in full operating gear. No spin, no agenda, just authentic conversation on just about anything. Welcome to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Internationally recognized radiologist and neurologist Dr. Michael Bransawatsky talks to Bruce on the media, trust, and masking. Then Bruce welcomes wealth management counselor Ivan Elon from Align Wealth on Inflation, the Fed, and the changing norms shaking up market traditions. The Bruce Cook Conversation with your host, Bruce Cook. Trending now, here's your host, Bruce Cook. Brought to you by the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hode. Good Sunday night, radio listeners. It's Bruce Cook at Angels Radio AMA 30 tonight. Our topics, your health, your money. Two things we all care about a, a whole lot these days. Actually, we always care about it. My first guest is a renowned physician. He's been on the program before. We're honored to have him back again his name is Dr. Michael Brandt Zawatsky. He happens to be the main guy at Hogue Hospital. He is the senior executive physician. He also is the Ron and Sandy Simon executive medical director for endowed chair for the endowed chair of the Pickup Family Neuroscience Institute. And by way of full disclosure, that institute and Hogue Hospital are also sponsors of this program. And I'm very proud of that as well. But Dr. Zawatsky is on tonight, Dr. Brant Zawatsky. We call him Dr. BZ. He's on tonight to talk about a serious crisis that we are suffering in healthcare that goes beyond everything we've been through in COVID. It is a resulting effect of what we've gone through in COVID. It's also a something that has to do with the change in in tone and in tenure and in and temperament of our public in dealing with their medical issues. It also possibly has to do with a lot more than that. And Dr. BZ is going to come on the radio live right now to talk about everything that's going on. Dr. BZ, are you there? Yes, I am, Bruce. Thank you for having me. It's always a great pleasure and an honor, as I said. I welcome you. And I have to start by saying to the audience that uh, uh, you have you wrote an essay, which I read a few weeks ago, which was so disturbing. It bothered me so much. I want to talk about the essence of that of that essay that you wrote. But before we get into it, I'd like to just ask you a general question about where you think we are with this Omicron surge that has shut down Beijing and shut down Shanghai and has really raged across Europe and now is around a number of states in America and including a rise in cases here. Well, Bruce, that's a, that's a um, broad question, <laughs> ranging from uh, Shanghai to here, a very different approaches to what's going on. But um, briefly... I think uh, we all realize that Omicron is an extremely, extremely infectious organism, virus. And we know that because the CDC just provided data that approximately 
60% of all Americans have been infected with COVID predominantly recently with Omicron because it is so highly infectious. It means 182 to 185 million Americans have been infected by this Omicron variant and the, the others that came before that were nowhere near as uh, transmissible. But it does tell us something else. If you consider the fact that 185 million, 182 to 185 million by now Americans have been infected, and yes, horrifically, 1 million have died, if you do that arithmetic, that means the mortality risk for an individual from this bug Omicron is approximately 0.5% meaning 99.5% of the 180-some million Americans survive. Okay, let me stop you there, because that's the big point that has been, how should we say, has it been hijacked by media? Has it been hijacked by governments? It certainly has been hijacked by the Chinese if they're shutting down all of Beijing and Shanghai. Does that, exactly. so, does that so mean, that, what does that mean, Dr. Beasy? Go take the next step. Well, the next step is that people do not translate well total numbers in a population to the level of individual risk. Now, let me give you an anecdote. So in the midst of the first surge, we saw in our emergency room a drop in 44% of stroke visits to the emergency room and a commensurate drop in acute heart attack visits to the emergency room. What what does that mean? Did that mean that the first wave of COVID somehow cured heart attacks and strokes? No, what it means is individuals cannot well gauge their individual risk of dying from a bug like COVID versus dying from a heart attack. Because if they could gauge that properly, they wouldn't have stopped coming to the emergency room and suffering irretrievable heart attacks and strokes at home. So what what it really means is there has been very poor communication by the authorities or by the media, whoever you want to blame, by doctors, including ourselves. All right. So we have to say, why? Why? Well, I think... I think part of it is our minds were hijacked by the fear virus, meaning that we were so slammed by the notion of this huge pandemic worldwide. And pandemics are worldwide. Epidemics are local outbreaks. That's the difference between epidemics and pandemics, uh, the the locality in which they are affected. But the widespread notion of this new bug that nobody knew any science behind and was killing all these people hijacked the brain and made us think that if we got COVID, we would die from it, whereas the reality proved very different. And as we are here today, that reality is even much more different because the statistics I gave you of the one million deaths, the vast majority of those in the U.S. did not occur from Omicron, which is now the predominant variant and a very mildly virulent drug. The, an example go ahead of the, of the uh, so just as an example of, of of the kind of mentality that we have is uh, headlined uh, just last week 
Vice President Kamala Harris battling COVID, right? And further down the story, you find out, well, she doesn't have any symptoms. She's asymptomatic. Much like the 182 million people of whom the vast majority were asymptomatic. Otherwise, how come we didn't hear that all these people were coming to the hospital sick with COVID? Yes, there was clearly a wave of hospitalizations that crested, uh, fortunately, uh, last January uh, from the totality of both Delta and early Omicron. But that wave has really washed over us. And since that time, we keep hearing about all these cases now rising because of a yet another slight variation on Omicron. This is the first disease that we've defined on the basis of a positive test. A positive test is not this ease. It is not an illness. And yet when the newspapers comment on all these new cases, they neglect to comment on the fact that these are mandated positive tests in many cases, as with Kamala Harris's, she's mandated to be tested periodically because she's in the White House. Everyone at the White House is mandated to be tested on a regular basis. This is a very infectious bug, but not very virulent. So it's likely that many, many people will be infected. Experts predict 80% of all Americans will be infected. But clearly, the vast, vast majority won't even know that they've been infected because they don't develop symptoms. The fear factor that you mentioned before is still alive and well, however. Dr. Beasy, everywhere I go, there are a lot of people that are still wearing masks, and there are a lot of people that are still afraid. And how does well, it change? That, how does it change? And, well, and I go I back. Before you answer, the other thing is, I go back to the why question. Why do you think this keeps perpetuating? Do you think it is it is sensationalism and the media feeds on it? Is it political? Is it is it precautionary? Why does it well, keep why are they not telling the story you're telling tonight? Well, I think that, that I am just giving you data. I am not in in the business of, of uh, making assumptions or politicizing anything or some may think what I just said is misinformation, but it's not. It's based purely on the data that is there. You, anyone can look this data up. It, the CDC has a trove of data on uh, everything I'm talking about. And so I, the answer to your question, though, is I think you hit on something, and, uh, and it's not politics but rather policy. And there's a subtle difference between policy and politics. Good point. Policy, policy is meant to... Uh, create a set of actions by an entity, whether it's an organization or a government, uh, to help uh, help direct action for a group of people, not individuals, but a group of people. And poly health policy in the face of an infection, um, an epidemic or pandemic, dictates certain actions, and vaccination is certainly right up there. Vaccines clearly work. And boosters clearly work. So vaccinating became the dominant policy aimed at slowing the progression of the disease when it was still in the highly, uh, highly transmissible stages, and particularly when it was the 
initial variants were still quite virulent and made hundreds of thousands of people sick and to the end point of mortality, a million Americans died associated with COVID infection. So clearly there was a need to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Um, and today the vestige, vestiges of that policy uh, are still with us. So any, any statements that mitigate the notion that this is a very serious, serious problem, like saying what I said earlier, which is scientifically valid, that 95.5% of people survive, well, that may be taken as a statement that says, oh, you shouldn't get vaccinated. That is not the correct deduction. Everyone who hasn't been vaccinated needs to be vaccinated and boosted, except, one might argue, except those people who already got COVID and have developed natural antibodies let's let's talk about that let me interrupt you let's talk about that because there's conflicting information on the antibodies and the length of protection some some doctors and some places say it can be up to two years and others say it could be three months well so the cdc in their january 28th letter uh, which is a mortality and morbidity uh, publication they regularly published uh, discussed several studies of the uh, longevity of um, antibodies or, or immunity, I should be more precise, immunity, because immunity is not just antibodies. Immunity also uh, is related to certain cells that are uh, uh, triggered with infection, so-called T cells, which are another type of immune cell that uh, allows for memory of the previous invader and can stoke a production of antibodies the next time that invader comes around. So it's not just uh, the B cells that produce antibodies, but the T cells that matter a lot in infection. So the CDC uh, had a number of articles that they uh, documented that showed that natural immunity can last up to two years. Um, now, again, we're talking about studies on a limited number of people, and each individual person is going to be different. Uh, that said, uh, it is often neglected in discussions about how widely immune that population is, that infection confers immunity as well as vaccination. And if you get both, so much the better. You're actually super, in a sense, super immune from both. That said, reinfections occur. Notably, look at uh, Vice President Harris. She's been vaccinated twice and double boosted, and she got a reinfection. So nothing is foolproof, not natural immunity, not vaccines in terms of becoming reinfected. The key is if you get reinfected and you have a level of immunity, your illness is likely to be very mild or you may be asymptomatic, as is Kamala Harris. So, so going back so going back to the narrative, how do we change the narrative so people understand this and are not afraid? How do we tell them that it is a form basically, and maybe it's the wrong terminology, of the flu? You're going to you're going to get well, it, with the exception of people that are very immune compromised. I would imagine even those people have to be more careful. Yes, absolutely. So we know that um, the people who are immune compromised can die from a common cold. I mean that is clearly well known, and so those who have clearly have immune compromise from either uh, 
a congenital defect or on the basis of chemotherapy or on the basis of uh, certain types of therapies for diseases such as arthritis, that steroids that lower immunity, et cetera. Those folks need to be just as worried about the flu and being exposed to any illness any infectious agent, uh, as well as COVID. That, that is just background knowledge, right? That is background common sense. If, you're, if you have an immunity issue, you have to be careful and keep yourself safe and, and, and extra safe, uh, particularly with an extremely infectious agent such as Omicron, because its uh, in, impact on you is going to be different than on the average healthy individual. So it's, it's, not, it's not the case that we're all going to get out of some, that one of us is going to get out of this alive. I mean, at some point, we, we will all succumb to something. But the fear factor, to answer your question, how do we get over the fear factor? It'll take trusted authorities like Dr. Fauci, who recently tried to say the epidemic or the pandemic would pass the pandemic phase. And unfortunately, he got jumped on because he said something that went a little bit against policy. And the policy that is in place to try and get everyone possible vaccinated uh, is is meant for a populational audience and not at the individual level, right? So it's meant to create a set of actions that is dictated for the utilitarian, utilitarian purpose of the best thing for the most number of people. But Doctor. at the individual level, that may not apply. Doctor, I'm going to stop you right there. We have to take a break. But you answered a question before I got to ask it. I wanted to know, how come Fauci has disappeared? And also, how come we're not hearing much from the head of the CDC and others and the pundits and the experts that were on television and on radio and in the newspaper have have faded away? Uh, we're hearing a lot on television from Dr. Ashish Shah, at, uh, who is now, I believe, with the White House staff, but others, not so much. When we come back in after the break, you, you hit on the most important thing of our conversation tonight on air, and that is trust factor. I want to go into that with you and talk about your essay and talk about trust in medicine today when we come back in one minute. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, stay with me. I'm Bruce Cook. I got that sunshine in my pocket, got that good soul in my feet, I feel that hot blood in my body when it drops, ooh, I can't take my... Angels Radio, AM 830. At the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, the Hoag Epilepsy Program is accredited by the National Association of Epilepsy Centers as a Level 4 Epilepsy Center. This means that our experts provide the highest level care for patients with complex epilepsy. Our patient-centered approach to epilepsy treatment combined with state-of-the-art technology, including robotics and laser ablation, ensure the best possible outcomes for our patients. To learn more or for an evaluation, call 949-966-0243 or visit hoag.org forward slash epilepsy care. That's right, and I like it too. I like it on the radio tonight. I'm Bruce Cook. This is the Bruce Cook Conversation. Our very special guest, Dr. Michael Brandt Zawatsky from Hogue Hospital, Newport Beach. We're talking about our health care, the COVID situation the elimination of the fear factor, 
And before we went to break, I wanted to ask Dr. Uh, BZ, we call him Dr. BZ. If you've been listening, you know that. I wanted to ask him uh, about some of the comments that he has made in an essay that I have written, that he has written, uh, that I read recently. Uh, and I'm going to start with something that segues from the fear factor, and that is, Dr. BZ, under, under the circumstances of what we've discussed previously in our conversation together about the extensive spread of the Omicron and so many people have had it and recovered from it, do you feel as a physician that it is absolutely necessary to wear a mask at this time, assuming that you're not, as we said, uh, impaired in a great way and in great danger? Is it necessary to wear a mask? Is it necessary on planes and trains and buses uh, and transportation especially? They, the government is mandating as you, as we said before, regulations that prohibit people from not doing so. What do you say? Well, again, full disclosure, um, I am not an infectious disease specialist. All I can say is that, unfortunately, there's been a lot of mixed messaging around masking. So last night's Washington Press Correspondents Dinner, you looked in that audience on TV like I did, and hardly anyone was masked. Only um, a few, yeah. And so, and yet, you know, on a plane where they have high-level HEPA filtration, and the air is uh, filtered specifically for uh, getting rid of particles as small as these viruses, uh, folks are still mandated to wear masks. So discrepancies like that erode trust in the policymakers. Um, that is was really the subject of my essay. Uh, my concern uh, now is that uh, given the, let's call it the new phase of the pandemic, as Dr. Fauci walked back his original statement that we're past the pandemic, the new phase of the pandemic is one where we're learning to live with this virus. Um, and this virus, uh, unless a new strain comes along that's much more virulent, uh, is so pervasive throughout that the only way to stop getting it is wearing cellophane wrap around your head. Um, and that's not going to happen. It begs the question of why the Chinese are trying to, um, to quarantine people and lock them indoors. In fact, it was amazing to me. I read the Shanghai statistics, all the damage that's being done to the people in Shanghai. There have only been deaths in, on the order of like a hundred and some the last time I looked. So they're, they're trying to stop the spread of a virus that is born in respiratory droplets and packing people indoors, which is the easiest way to spread a virus, as the early Chinese data showed way back when, when the pandemic started. The most common place to get the virus was indoors with people close together. So it, hard, it hard to figure. Sense. So hard to figure. It doesn't make sense at a stage where the virus is now so mild that the risk to the individual from getting it, certainly under the age of 65, is the same as the flu. And for kids, by the way, three-quarters of the kids in our country have gotten infected by COVID per the CDC statement the other day. So it's not me saying that. It's the CDC. 75% of our kids have been exposed, meaning they have natural immunity. And, by the way, kids who get the virus tend to have a much milder illness. The, the death rate in the early... Uh, year, the first year of the pandemic, when the virus was more virulent, the death rate in kids under 18 was lower 
on a per 100,000 people basis than from uh, the seasonal uh, epidemic flu. Dr. BC, BC, I'm going to stop you because I want to transition into the trust question because we only have a few minutes left. Let me start by quoting from that essay that we're referring to. The horrible thing that you write in this thing is that you were watching Bill Maher on television one night, and he was, I think, I think if I'm if I'm remembering right, he was either interviewing or talking to Joe Rogan, and he said to Joe Rogan, "quote Don't trust medical professionals." So I ask you, if we don't trust our doctors, who can we trust? Actually, we should trust our doctors. Doctors have long uh, spent a long. Um, time learning medicine and medicine has grown into a body of science that is uh, based on data Uh, and unfortunately policy and uh, individual care can sometimes differ so even with Kamala Harris she was just prescribed Paxlovid Uh, well the doctor you mentioned uh, Dr. Ashish Jha, who's, who is the White House leader for the COVID response currently, said that this drug shouldn't be used unless you have symptoms, and then in the early stages of symptoms. That's when, that's what's indicated. But when John, Jen Psaki, the White, House course, the White House spokesperson, was asked about that, she said, well, she consulted with her individual doctor, and her doctor prescribed it. There that's you exactly go. what we want to see. We want to see people consult with their individual doctors, particularly expert doctors like the ones we have at Hoke, who really have studied medicine and earned the trust of their patients because they're the best ones to judge what a, how a person should be treated or not. And we must remember that health policy people, uh, including Dr. Fauci, you know, who's a very smart guy and at one point was an individual physician, is a policy person. That inherently means that he needs to follow a set of rules and guidelines meant for a large population and is not, he is not a doctor to an individual person. So what is your message tonight on the radio to people listening all over Southern California about who they should listen to and who they should trust? You've sort of said, trust your own doctor. But how do you cut through the media? How do you cut through the experts, the policy people? How about the Internet and, and all the people on the Internet? What do you tell, tell our listeners what, what they need to do to trust their doctor and get their health in order? Well, uh, trust your doctor. Ask the right questions. You have every right to ask for a second opinion from another physician. But if, if you do that all the time, you probably have the wrong doctor. So uh, the whole idea is that in the, we, we in medicine want to be patient-centric and treat individual patients with precision medicine based on their set of variables, their health condition, and that's what we do at Hogue. That's what our doctors are striving to do. They've earned your trust, and if they uh, somehow violate that trust, then find another doctor. Well, I think that's pretty well said. As we wrap up our time together, any other any other pearls of wisdom, any other advice to people moving forward, people that are maybe afraid to take that mask off in public, situations think, they should avoid or not avoid? And you Don't worry about wearing a mask in public. Understand that you need to take control of your own health. And if you fear sufficiently enough 
that you are at risk and you want to wear a mask, absolutely do that. But also understand the science. Those surgical masks aren't perfect. Why did Joe Biden send out N95 masks to pharmacies, uh, almost admitting that the surgical masks aren't perfect? It's better than nothing, but it's not, it's not stopping breathing. So you have to gauge your own risk. Understand your own risk. Understand that the risk of dying from, uh, from this current COVID bug um, is about the same as your risk of dying an accidental death annually one last one last question one last question relating again to the fear factor what do you say to citizens that have either not been vaccinated or are possibly hesitant of taking a booster when they hear so much chatter about side effects special effects pain is the is the vaccine strong enough which one works better how do, you, how do you get the trust back with all of that going on? So what I would say, given the statistics the CDC just gave us, if you're, if you're a vax, anti-vaxxer, at least get a serum antibody test and see if you have immunity. Then you can at least have some level of security that you, your immune system has been exposed to the bug and you're not likely to get a severe illness. If you, if you don't want to do that, get vaccinated because... It is a scientific fact that vaccines work, and yes, they do fade in terms of their effectiveness. Antibodies from vaccination do wane, and so you can get reinfected, hence the booster message. And we'll probably end up, all of us, getting an annual uh, COVID vaccine, much like we get an annual flu vaccine, which those of us who are rational take, because we understand that vaccines actually have science behind them, and they are don't protect 100%. And yes, rare complications can occur, but it's much riskier to not get a vaccine if you don't have immunity for a given bug. You said those of us who are rational. Dr. Beasy, I'm afraid we got a lot of irrational people around, and I'm going to leave it at that. But I want to thank you so much for being on tonight, sharing your wisdom, your expertise. I hope everybody's listening, and I hope you'll come back again sometime very soon. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, It was my pleasure and the pleasure of our listeners all over Southern California. Good night to you. We're moving on. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook. It's The Conversation. We're going to take our half-hour break. When we come back, I'm welcoming Ivan Elan, and we're talking about your money. We're going from your health to your money, and they probably relate to one another. So stay with me. we got a lot more to talk about. Angels Radio. AMA 30. Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue is ranked in the top 1% in the nation by U.S. News and World Report. It provides world-class care through multidisciplinary expert teams, each focusing on specific disorders of the brain and spine, such as stroke, aneurysms, brain tumors, Parkinson's disease, cognitive disorders including Alzheimer's, epilepsy, back pain, as well as spinal cord issues, addiction medicine, and sleep disorders. Our renowned experts offer the best evidence-based care, state-of-the-art technology, and the latest clinical research, all focused on the individual patient. Our stroke program was the first in Orange County named as a certified comprehensive stroke center, and our brain tumor program is the largest in Orange County and among the top volume programs in the Western United States. Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute. Compassionate care, clinical excellence, creative intelligence. To learn more, call 
516-9075 or visit hogue.org forward slash neuroinstitute. If the woman you love, your mom, wife, daughter, sister, partner, or friend is on a downward spiral from substance abuse and doesn't know where to turn, New Directions for Women can help. It's a Costa Mesa-based addiction treatment facility that has the answer. Since 1977, New Directions for Women has helped more than 5,000 women change their lives, returning them to sobriety, healthy living, restoring love and hope, and providing dignity for them and for their families. Don't waste another day. The woman you love needs your help now. Call New Directions. The number is 888-786-0509. Once again, call 888-786-0509 or visit them at www.newdirectionsforwomen.org. That's New Directions for Women. They know recovery. When I was a young kid living in the city, all I did was pay, 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 pay. Every single dime that good Lord give me, I can make it last three, four, five days. What about perfect music to introduce Ivan Elan? A young kid in the city, and all I did was pay, pay, pay. Hi, I'm Bruce Cook. It's the conversation tonight on Angels Radio AMA 30. And as I said, we're going from your health to your money, and I'm going to introduce you to a very special guy who is a respected financial advisor. He is a stockbroker. He is one of the founders or the founder of Align Wealth Management, which is located in Los Angeles, New York, and Miami, Florida. He is also a trusted expert who is a active member in the CFA Institute and founding member of CFA Society Los Angeles. Welcome, Ivan. Hi, Bruce. How hey, are you? How are you? It's so good to hear you. Ivan, you come on the show occasionally. Actually, I'm going to have you on as often as I can grab your attention because the economy, inflation, the stock market, our money, our home uh, interest rates, all of this is such fodder for talk and information, and people are desperate for some guidance um, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Could I start with the most obvious question since the market last week was crazy, ending a thousand points so or so down on Friday? What's going to happen tomorrow? I know that you can't predict, but <laughs> do what you can. <laughs> yeah, the, well, certainly the, the, the markets are no doubt extremely volatile. And, you know, for a while, um, there was really a lag. There was a delay in watching this volatility uh, come about in the marketplace. And, and and now I think the the market's looking at what the Federal Reserve is doing and, and uh, understanding very clearly that they are going to be raising interest rates. And the message lately is that they're going to be raising interest rates even more aggressively than they had ever indicated prior. And so the general consensus from a lot of economists that I follow, uh, is that the Federal Reserve has made some mistakes. And now they're in this uh, you know, position of having to uh, play catch-up, essentially. They had too much easing for too long. There was too much money supply injected into the economy for too long. And, and that creates uh, a, a tremendous amount of imbalances in the economy, 
and we're beginning to see the, the cracks in the foundation. Well, you know what? Financial experts that I've known, really top people that I've known over the years, have always said, kind of in unison, that the market has a sense of what's happening or going to happen before the media and the public really know about it. This sounds to me like even the market is surprised. I, I think you're right. I mean, Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve Chairman, had for so long, you know, especially during the pandemic, was very clear that inflation was transitory. Uh, they kept repeating that over and over, over and, and over, over and over. over. It was almost like they said it so much you just didn't believe it. But, yeah, and, but, or that it was an actual, like this was a, a fact, but, in, but it isn't a fact. And, of course, inflation is very much here to stay, has been uh, not only uh, increasing, but increasing at alarming rates. You know, something very interesting that, uh, that I heard uh, an economist talk about in the past week was if you uh, look at the formula that we use today in calculating the CPI or inflation metric that we use today and right now, you know, month, you know year over year using uh, ending last month, is like 8.5%. Well, if you use that same formula, and apply that to the 70s when, you know, we remember or people have talked about, you know, 16, 17, 18 percent interest rates, very, very high inflation. Well, if you actually use the same formula, the inflation rate was around 10, maybe 11 percent. So we're actually very, very close to where we were in the depths of despair in the 70s economy here in the United States. And that's very scary. And I think people are feeling it. People are seeing it. The odd thing is that it hasn't actually showed up in consumer consumption yet. Retail sales are still very, very strong. But uh, you have to be careful how you read the news on that because it's actually very strong because inflation is so strong. So people haven't really stopped their their behavior of buying. I think it's Uh, I think it's but we are seeing more. I think it's uh, heavily psychological. Also, people who are sick of being pinned down in the pandemic and they had a breath of fresh air and they were out traveling and spending and going to dinner and living and traveling and whatever, and they don't want to give it up. So it hasn't hit home yet that that, you know, and I don't think that eight to 10% is even accurate. I'll tell you this, this is a silly anecdote, but it's, it made me crazy just this morning. I went to the market and there's a, at the market that I go to there, they make their own bagel chips and not long ago, for three forty nine, you got a large plastic container of various chopped bagel chips that were obviously made from leftover bagels. Today, it's a tiny container, uh, about a third the size, and the price is four seventy nine. So I said to my wife, "I didn't buy the bagel chips." And she said, "Why didn't you buy the bagel chips?" I said, "Because it went from three forty nine for a big container to four seventy nine for a little lousy one." And she said, "It was only a dollar. It was something you wanted. Why didn't you just get it? It was just a dollar." I said, "That is a thirty five percent increase." Right. People aren't well, th- people aren't that, thinking but you, but that. You got a, but you got a reduction. You got a reduction and a reduction. In your actual. Con- so, and so really, it's, it's it's like a seventy-five percent or eighty percent increase in cost. And I say your your serving size was reduced. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And I say that's happening in tons of in tons of ways 
from housing to gasoline to bagel chips. And people are going to they're going to wake up and they're going to say we're in trouble. And I think you're right, Bruce. And, and the, the critical thing is going to be seeing how how soon does that behavior start to show up in the actual figures of what we're looking at. And I think because there's still about an extra $2 trillion sitting in money market funds and checking accounts and savings accounts in this country. About, I only have $1 trillion um, in mine. How about you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is a phenomenal number. It's a staggering number. So, so all of that, uh, those payments and all of that stimulus that was put out there, uh, by and large, quite a bit of it is still sitting out there and hasn't been allocated uh, you know, to, to spending. So, and, and a lot of it hasn't been able to be allocated because of supply chain issues and all these other related uh, post-COVID uh, type things. So that is something that is going to be very interesting is, you know, if people feel like they can absorb this higher cost because they have maybe a little bit more savings. That's not exactly the right behavior. Uh, that that we normally would see in in a higher inflated environment. People usually change their consumption, you know, for those bagel chips pretty quickly, like you did. I uh, I, but, I don't you know. know. Maybe yeah. I'll maybe I'll just blow it all and spend wildly <laughs> and spend wildly. Let me change the subject. Talk to me about Elon Musk and Twitter and Morgan Stanley and other big Wall Street firms putting forty six odd mil, billion dollars behind that purchase. What does that tell so, you? What does uh, that say? Yeah, so so really, there there's there's several banks that have uh, really formed a consortium to support his ability to do this buyout. But essentially, it's a leverage buyout. Um, so using the assets of Twitter as collateral for all of this debt, and he's putting up, um, uh, well, you know, double digit billions of his own into it, but. Um, and that's the majority, well, 50% of it is his own money. But the other 50% is being chipped in really through loans um, and also collateral on his own Tesla stock. So so it, it is, uh, they're, they're definitely not taking equity. They're not going down that path with him. And, uh, you know, he was even saying himself at a TED Talk uh, last week that buying Twitter is, is not a business decision. It's a terrible business decision, actually, because it's not a moneymaker for him. Uh, what it is, what he was saying, was that it's a, um, it, it's for the good of society. I mean, he's really, you know, taking a position that it's just uh, terrible the amount of uh, censorship and, you know, I mean, simple things like, you know, when the former president of the United States gets, you know, canceled on Twitter, it's kind of ridiculous, you know. So, so he's really, uh, you know, using the money and, and certainly what would appear to be. A, a more altruistic uh, agenda, which is, you know, his prerogative. He can do that. But from a money-making standpoint, probably a very bad idea. Is that why uh, his stock dropped so significantly? Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons, yeah. Um, you know, because, it, you know, well, if he's making decisions on one hand that really have no economic value or value creation, then is he doing that also with Tesla? You know, are there elements of that in his own business? And, you know, there's certainly been many times when, uh, you know, you get the impression that he's a brilliant guy, but, you know, maybe not the, the best, uh, you know, manager when it comes to making, you know, financially profitable decisions. 
Uh, you know, you have to remember that it's only recently that Tesla even began to turn a profit. Right. You know, it's been right. losing money year over year over year since inception. So I, it's only a re- very recent thing. You know. I mean, what assets, what actual physical assets, financial assets, does a, a service such as Twitter have other than other than possible uh, advertising revenue but what is what are the assets yeah. a building somewhere that nobody knows i mean it's probably rented office yeah, space they, yeah they, they may they may own some uh, real estate but but certainly the, the largest piece of of the, the value of the company is goodwill and intellectual property and uh, that's very common for these uh, tech companies you know the, the certainly the largest asset that they have is what they call ip and it's a very esoteric category. It's very hard to, uh, you know, even in the CFA Institute, which I'm a member of, as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, there's always a lot of argument about uh, what is the real value of a company, especially when 60 or 70 percent of the value of the company is this kind of made up number uh, of goodwill. Well, especially thrown uh, in there as a catch all, especially in today's tech world with so many of these uh, billion trillion dollar enterprises are how do I say they they can evaporate you know it's it is all just it is all just ideology I mean meta well and we've seen that happen before we, we have seen that happen in 1999 obviously um, there was a 2000 um, uh, in your stock crash and there were companies billion dollar companies that were going public that hadn't even turned in one dollar of revenue, forget about profit, hadn't even generated a dollar of revenue and were worth a billion dollars. That was more than 20 years ago. You know, so, so this is in some ways, um, you know, we're finding the markets always seem to find ways to repeat uh, previous lessons that it didn't really learn from. And, uh, and money tends to uh, pool and collect in in areas uh, creating asset bubbles that would otherwise not e- exist, uh, especially when the Federal Reserve, you know, goes on really big uh, money supply growth, uh, you know, programming like they've been doing for the really the past ten years, but the past three years it's been uh, a colossus, something beyond what anyone had ever imagined. Ivan, I've got to I've got to break in. Yeah. I've got to break in because we've got yeah. to. I'm overdue on taking my break. We uh, we need to give some sponsors some time, but don't go away because we have a lot more to talk about with only a few minutes. So stay with me, ladies and gentlemen. Stay with Ivan Ilan tonight talking about your money. We'll be right back. Angels Radio, AM eight thirty. As part of the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, Hoag's Neurospine program offers innovative methods to reduce pain, inflammation, and improve mobility safely and effectively, often without surgery. Should you need surgery, Hoag is a leader with minimally invasive techniques, 3D imaging, and robotics to restore your golf swing or your swing dance. Many of our patients go home in just a few hours, walking the very next day. Call our dedicated nurse navigator at 949-537-2931 for an evaluation or visit hoag.org forward slash Help. 
I don't know what you think, but I think we all need to hold on and watch out for the mistakes we're going to make in the financial world. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook. Back break is over. I'm talking to a wealth management advisor, Ivan Ilan, in Los Angeles tonight. And we're hitting some high points on on what's going on with inflation and and the market. And we only have a few minutes left, so I'm going to put Ivan on the spot, and I'm going to say, Ivan, is there such a thing as a good time or a bad time to come in or out of the market? And what do you tell your clients? Well, it's a great question, and uh, you know, for a long time, the philosophy has been, you know, people like Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. Um, you know, or Warren Buffett, the Berkshire Hathaway, their philosophy was always buy a simple index fund and hold it for 40 years. <laughs> okay. You know, so, but, you know, Jack Bogle died several years ago and Warren Buffett's in his 90s. Um, so maybe 50 years ago, that was a, um, you know, a, a good position and a great way to manage your money. You just kind of make an investment and do it systematically through your 401k and try not to uh, mess with it, uh, because research has shown that individual investors, unfortunately, make uh, bad timing decisions regularly when it comes to getting in and out of the market. So, you know, hiring a wealth advisor, somebody who's actually actively managing money, actively making outlooks and forecasts about where uh, should money be allocated and make changes uh, from time to time. And uh, I think a great example of this right now um, is you're hearing a lot of uh, pundits in the financial world talk about the death of the 60-40 portfolio, 60% equities, 40% bonds. For many, many years, that was like a stalwart in investment management. Well, that portfolio year-to-date is getting absolutely crushed. And the reason for that is because the 40% in fixed income is down more than the Dow Jones. It's down nearly 12% this year. Bonds are having an awfully difficult time maintaining any of their value. And that's going to continue to happen as interest rates go higher and higher because interest rates and the prices of bonds move inversely to one another. And people haven't seen this in 30 years. So this is shocking a lot of clients and creating even more uh, concern and, uh, you know, and, and I think it, this is uh, why it's so important to you know, have a good advisor and make sure those people know what they're doing um, and being active about where they're allocating uh, your, your money. So are clients with heavy bond portfolios trying to get out of them or are they locked into them? What are you telling them? Yeah. So, if you know, in, in the situation where a client may have um, – you know, five-year bonds uh, that or seven-year bond uh, maturities, uh, they're, they're already down 10, 11, 12 percent. And so uh, if they hold on until maturity, they're going to receive back par value. That's the agreement on, on bonds. They'll, you'll, you know, as long as it's an investment-grade bond, your risk is certainly reduced because that company – uh, you know, has a pretty good reputation of paying their debt and maintaining their debt service coverage. Um, so it's definitely uh, a challenging situation because if they're down on their bonds and they're down on their stocks at the same time, an experience people haven't seen in a long, long time, really since the 90s, um, it, it most likely is resulting in some 
not so good decision making and people are selling things that they may do better if they just sit on it for a few years. Um, but it's pretty hard to do, especially when there's even more decline perhaps set to come. Uh, so, so I definitely say, you know, if there's one thing you want to do in your portfolio right now is really understand um, if you if you have bonds, what are those bond maturities? And a lot of people own bonds in mutual funds, and it's a pretty easy uh, data to, to get. You can call up the company that you have your bond funds with and say, what is my maturity on my bond funds? And they'll give you a number in years. And if that number is over you know, seven years or 10 years, that's how long it's going to take for those par values to show up in that fund. And that's a long time to wait for just getting back par value. Definitely. Uh, our time is basically up tonight, Ivan. I want to end by thanking you and asking you to share your email or your phone number or any information. If anybody listening would like to reach out, I would be honored to allow you to do that. Oh, well, sure. Um, you can always go to my website, which is IvanAlan.com. That's I-V-A-N-I-L-L-A-N.com. Um, or you can uh, also call my cell phone, 310-795-0622, uh, 310-795-0622. Always happy to uh, speak with anyone about their, their situation. Now, that's what I call personal service. Uh, thank you so much <laughs> for coming on the uh, program tonight. Um, you always give us such good advice. It's always clear and that's important because clarity is something that's lacking big time in, in the financial world these days. We have 30 seconds left. Do you have a tip to close the show? Um, no tip, just maybe some deep breathing exercises over yeah. the next few weeks as the Federal <laughs> Reserve continues their, their, their path. So uh, try to stay calm. That's a good good way to end. Thank you so much, Ivan. Come back again on Angels Radio, Bruce Cook Conversation. Have a great night. We do, Bruce. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with me tonight. As always, it's my great honor to have you and to have the privilege of your time on air. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, stay safe, be well, and keep listening to Angels Radio. Good night. You've been listening to The Bruce Cook Conversation. Hear the Bruce Cook Conversation on Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific on AM 830 KLAA. And hear the podcasts of every show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.